Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Let's take our seats. Uh, welcome to uh, Medical Grand Rounds. The uh, code for today's uh, uh, Grand Rounds is uh, had, had been uh, displayed. I think it is Q Y V. Someone tell me. QIVX, thank you, uh, and um, we'll, uh, we'll announce it at the end as well. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, to uh, open this up uh, with um, uh, regards from Rich Rothstein, who couldn't be here, uh, but this conference is hosted by the Department of Medicine and the uh, Heart and Vascular Center, and to introduce our speaker today, uh, Mark Krieger, who is Professor of Medicine and of Surgery and director of the Heart and Vascular Center uh, will uh, do the honors. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning, everyone. I am absolutely delighted to introduce uh, today's speaker, Dr. Robert Bono. Bob is a longtime friend of mine and a real pillar in the cardiovascular community. He is currently the Goldberg Distinguished Professor of Cardiology at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine, and he serves there as the Vice Chairman of the Department of Medicine. Uh, he received his MD and trained at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. He then went on to uh, begin a very distinguished investigative uh, career in the cardiology branch at the National Heart uh, Lung and Blood Institute, where he was there for about 16 years and then went from there to lead what has become one of the most prominent cardiovascular programs in the country uh, at Northwestern University. And he served as chief of the cardiovascular division there until 2011. But he didn't stop there. He has just kept going and has uh, really uh, had so many positions of leadership and responsibility since then. Uh, among his current major responsibilities, he serves as the uh, editor-in-chief of JAMA Cardiology, and he's also one of four editors of the principal cardiovascular textbook, uh, Brown World's uh, Heart Disease. Uh, but there's more. Uh, he has served as past pre or he has served as president, so he's past president of the American Heart Association. He's a master of the American College of Cardiology and of the American College of Physicians. He currently serves on the Board of Scientific Counselors of the NHLBI. And among his many, many honors are the Distinguished Leadership Award, the Distinguished Achievement Award, the Gold Heart Award, and the James Herrick Award from the American Heart Association, and the Distinguished Fellowship Award and Distinguished Service Award of the American College of Cardiology. Very relevant to today's uh, presentation, he has served as chair and member of the writing committee of the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, practice guidelines on valvular heart disease. So today's topic is quite uh, within his sphere of expertise, progress in aortic stenosis, new insights, new options, new challenges. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Bob Bonham. Uh, thanks very much, Dr. Krieger, and uh, uh, it's a delight to be here. Um, used to uh, vacation up in the, in the North Woods here, so I'm familiar with the uh, territory, and it's nice to uh, be back up with you. 
Um, and thanks to uh, Dr. Krieger and, and Kuvin for the invitation to be a part of the cardiovascular milieu for the last couple of days. Uh, so this is a topic that I've been interested in since I was a medical student, and uh, when I first uh, went to the NIH, uh, it was uh, uh, an area of uh, great interest. Uh, echocardiography was new. Uh, we didn't have magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, we still had good ears for doing auscultation and uh, allowed us to um, get into some of the uh, dynamics of aortic stenosis back then. But this field, which was relatively um, quiescent for decades, interesting academic discussion, has now become very active and exciting. We now actually have clinical trials, as you know, as well as new imaging methods and, and uh, other ways to evaluate who are the patients and, and how, do we, how do we manage them. And as you'll see, we have a lot of patients to discuss. And I'm sure everybody in the room is uh, uh, seeing these patients um, in various walks of life, and uh, it, it leads to good discussions. So uh, I have no relationship to disclose. <clears throat> so let's start with a patient. Uh, he's a real patient of mine. He's a retired uh, economics professor from uh, Michigan State who now has a farm in downstate Illinois. He's very active. Uh, he's got uh, a tractor that he loves to hop on and off of. He chops wood. He shovels snow. Uh, he feels good. Uh, he uh, uh, has diminished carotid pulses as a three over six late peaking outflow murmur, and his ECG shows LBH. So hopefully we already made the diagnosis. Uh, and the next step, when we ask the medical residents uh, what would we do next, of course, they want to get an echocardiogram. Uh, it's a patient with a murmur. It's kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, we, we don't need the echo to make the diagnosis. We do need the echo to figure out what we're going to do next. And so uh, here's his echocardiogram. <clears throat> for those of you who do not do this for a living, let's identify the anatomy left ventricle, left atrium, aorta. And so by definition, that's the aortic valve. It's very calcified. Um, and we put a little um, Doppler crystal across that valve. We're going to measure the velocity across that valve. So I'm putting a nozzle on a hose, and the tightness of the nozzle is going to be determined by what's the velocity of, of, of flow across the valve. And so the velocity is 4.6. So immediately the cardiologists who are here recognize that this is very high, because usually there's no... Up, uptake in velocity across that valve, which should open freely when normal. And from that, we can calculate the mean gradient and the aortic valve area. And so this uh, fits the criteria. All three of those identify this patient as having severe aortic stenosis, because those are the criteria. It's a, a velocity greater than 4, a mean gradient greater than 40 millimeters of mercury, aortic valve area less than 1. Okay, that was easy. Uh, the next step is not so easy. What do we recommend now that we have defined this not only as being a, a diagnosis of aortic stenosis, but now this patient has severe aortic stenosis. He feels fine. He's not interested in surgery. So we have three options here. Uh, one option is to do uh, watchful waiting. A term I hate is actually active surveillance. If we're not going to be uh, intervening on this patient, we're going to watch this patient very, very carefully have uh, important discussions with the patient about the kind of symptoms this patient could look out for. Uh, this patient of mine gets my cell phone number, too, and he's supposed to call me if any of those symptoms occur. Uh, we could get more data. We could do a stress test. We could measure a BNP. Uh, could we just replace the valve now? None of these answers, none of these questions have a wrong answer. These, these are all possible options. Nothing wrong here. All depends on what we're going to do with the next step. We'll come back to him. Okay, 
So what do we know about aortic stenosis? For, for you and me living in this country, <clears throat> we have usually two etiologies. The third etiology, of course, would be rheumatic. Um, and so in many places of the world, that's the leading cause of aortic stenosis. And we st in Chicago, we have an immigrant population, so we still see patients with rheumatic disease. And you may also, because this occurs also in, uh, in rural areas of this country as well. But for most of us, it's either the patient with the uh, congenital aortic stenosis, up to 2% of the population has bicuspid valves, so somebody in this room has got a bicuspid valve, maybe more than one. Um, and so uh, the other uh, etiology, of course, is a anatomically normal valve, which becomes calcified and stenotic over the course of uh, the function of aging. Now, we think of the valve on the left, the bicuspid valve, as being a disease of a young age. And so, you know, the 25-year-old with aortic stenosis probably has a bicuspid valve. But this is not a disease only of old age, of young age. This also occurs in, in older individuals, too. Uh, Bill Roberts, a pathologist um, now in... Uh, uh, Texas, who was a colleague of mine at the NIH, uh, did a, a study of patients having surgery for aortic stenosis, where he gets every valve coming out of the uh, surgical amphitheater. Uh, and he found that uh, over the age of 60, half of the men have bicuspid valves. Over the age of 80, one-third of the men have bicuspid valves. We replaced a, a valve in a 92-year-old woman that was bicuspid. So uh, it, obviously it's a, a disease that plays out uh, various ways in uh, different stages of life, and it's not uncommon to have older individuals still be living with bicuspid valves and coming to attention. This has important implications when we talk about TAVR, uh, when we are talking about a transcatheter approach, because uh, many of these valves are not designed to fully expand when you put in a, a, a prosthetic uh, valve with a catheter-based approach. So that's one reason why making that distinction is important. The other reason to identify the patients on the left who have bicuspid valves is the associated aortopathy that occurs. We're not just talking about evaluating the valve and the ventricle, but what could be going on with the aorta. Because patients with bicuspid valves uh, have a high prevalence of having aortic dilatations and aneurysms. Um, this has got some interesting science to it. When I was growing up in medicine, uh, we were taught that the reason the aorta dilates is because that bicuspid valve creates a, uh, a high-velocity jet which impinges on the aortic wall, and you can develop post-stenotic post dilatation. And then in the uh, era of molecular biology, this became a little more interesting because there's some abnormalities of cell-cell interaction related to the genetics of a, a bicuspid valve. The mesodermal tissue uh, that uh, uh, creates the valve also creates the proximal aorta. And so it's been demonstrated that there are uh, abnormalities in the interstitium, uh, somewhat analogous to uh, Marfan syndrome, but not uh, nearly as uh, lethal. There's increased degeneration of elastin and collagen-rich uh, uh, matrix, uh, increased expression of metalloproteinases, and decreased uh, expression of the tissue inhibitors metalloproteinases, increased smooth muscle cell apoptosis, and importantly, excessive TGF beta signaling. Um, so that's been demonstrated. So this shifted from being uh, a process we thought of as being a mechanical effect more to a, a more um, a physiologic effect related to uh, cellular um, abnormalities. <laughs> but stay tuned, because in the current era, we can also look at the flow through a bicuspid valve in some, some new uh, uh, methods using uh, magnetic resonance imaging. So this is a 4D, a 4D MRI <clears throat> looking at flow through a bicuspid valve. 
normally this is a laminar flow process. But the bi bicuspid valve, that um, stenotic jet, leads to a high-velocity vortex, which impinges on the aortic wall, um, and creates uh, um, some flow abnormalities that may be related to why the uh, aorta may dilate. So this is an image from Dr. Michael Markle in our radiology group, who's been running with this uh, uh, series of images for quite a while um, and leading to some um, uh, interesting uh, interactions between us and the radiologists and our surgeons. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting imaging. Um, does it actually relate at all to real life? Well, it depends on uh, how you interpret uh, the data that are now uh, emerging from this. So if you think of a bicuspid valve as being Mercedes-Benz sign that now has fused one of those uh, three leaflets. So you can fuse a trileaflet valve into a bicuspid valve by fusing the right and left cusp, or you can fuse maybe the right cusp and the non-coronary cusp. That leads to a different direction of the jet, impinging on the aortic wall in different locations. And so we now have done some studies where when patients go to surgery and we get tissue from the aorta, uh, the areas that are identified from the, the 4D MRI as being under a higher wall stress, these heat maps, are the areas where you see the upregulation of the metalloproteinases and the upregulation of TGF-beta as well. So it seems like there may be an interaction here between the physics of the bicuspid valve and what's turning on. Those, those genes for uh, abnormalities related to the uh, cellular abnormalities. So it's uh, interesting science. Uh, it's not going to lead to changes in management at the current time, but you can begin to think there may, there may actually be some signals here that one could uh, start uh, targeting, perhaps with drug therapy, to reduce some of these effects. But again, the mechanical effects are, are there and certainly related to uh, why patients with bicuspid valves differ from patients with uh, trileaflet valves in terms of the um, uh, effects on the aorta. Okay, let's, let's just backtrack now and then talk about the, the valve itself, aortic stenosis. So here's a, obviously a heavily calcified valve. So the other thing I was taught when I was growing up, which turns out to be inaccurate, is that this is kind of a passive wear and tear. It's like a rusty gate left out in the rain for too long, and this with an active uh, uh, opening and closing of that valve. You can do the math as to how many millions of times that happens over the course of an 80-year-old's life. Um, one gets, develops a thickening and calcification. Uh, we now know that that may not be the case, but certainly with aging, one does see an increased prevalence of aortic stenosis. It's the bicuspid valves coming of age as well as the degeneration of the trileaflet valves. Uh, these data from the Como and co-workers at Mayo Clinic, uh, just looking at uh, free living uh, Americans involved in four different registries. And 28,000 individuals shows that over the age of 75, roughly 5 to 6% of people have significant calcific aortic disease. Um, this is not passive wear and tear. Um, early studies have uh, shown that this is probably related to cardiovascular risk factors that you and I recognize. Here's an interesting study from the uh, Framingham Offspring Study by Thanos Hulis and coworkers. Um, this is looking at individuals who are enrolled um, at age uh, 34. Uh, between the uh, years 1971 and 1975. Um, on the third follow-up visit, they get a CT scan. The median follow-up now has been 27 years. What the investigators did was go back and look at the uh, Framingham risk score factors 27 years earlier 
And now who has developed the aortic valve calcification on this CT scan? And so this is a very simple analysis of the Framingham risk score, low, intermediate, and high on the um, um, x-axis, and the prevalence of aortic valve calcification. Patients with a higher Framingham risk score have more uh, prevalent calcification and also more severe calcification using an aortic valve calcium score. Uh, so this was an uh, early look at this from Framingham. More recent study comes from Ontario, and Ontario's got a great database where they capture virtually everybody who lives in Ontario. Uh, this is uh, looking at 1.1 million individuals in Ontario over the age of 65. Mean follow-up is 13 years, of whom 20,000 develop aortic stenosis. And these were the risk factors identified as being associated with the development of aortic stenosis, hypertension, diabetes, and dyslipidemia. Uh, and further analyses, you know, the severity of the hypertension, the severity of the diabetes was uh, also related. And when you had multiple factors, that also multiplied the, uh, the hazard ratio as well. And so there's a signal here that this is somehow related to these cardiovascular risk factors, <clears throat> leading to the suggestion that this may not be such a passive process at all. And the thinking now is that this is actually an active uh, proliferative inflammatory lesion. So following the uh, inflammation trail are a number of studies, such as this one by uh, Dweck and co-workers. It's a, a PET CT study uh, using the CT to identify the area of calcification in the valve and the PET data to look at markers of ossification and inflammation using um, uh, PET markers. And so they use uh, sodium fluoride as a marker of ossification and fluorodeoxyglucose is a marker of inflammation. And we have three examples here of a, a normal individual, a person with mild aortic stenosis, and a patient with severe aortic stenosis. The areas of active calcification are the areas of active inflammation. And moreover, when they follow a patient serially, they got some interesting data as well. Here's two patients in that series at the baseline showing a mild degree of calcification, but a lot of inflammation. And when this patient, these two patients were followed up roughly 14 months later, one sees the areas uh, that were inflamed are now also uh, more calcified. So this active inflammatory process uh, is one that's creating a, a lot of noise now in the field of aortic stenosis because it suggests that there might be therapies that could reduce um, the uh, degree of inflammation and perhaps change the natural history. Uh, here is an uh, uh, interesting study from uh, Quebec where the individuals undergoing aortic valve uh, surgery have their tissue uh, examined uh, 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 from the operating room. And once looking at the activation of lipoprotein-associated phospholipase A2, the phospholipase A2 uh, hydrolyzes fatty acids into phosphatidylcholine and fatty acids, phosphatidylcholine being an inflammatory trigger. And so the areas where they're seeing activation of the phospholipase A2 is where they also see uh, oxidized uh, uh, phospholipids. And then finally, there may be genetic markers as well. Uh, the same George Thanasoulis, who gave us that study from Framingham, uh, went on through his Framingham connections to be a part of a very large a GWAS study involving uh, multiple investigators from around the world. So you have the typical GWAS study with a cast of thousands on the author list um, from around the world, uh, initially uh, identifying a single SNP on chromosome 6. Um, and this is in the locus of LPA. Uh, which is the gene which uh, codes for the uh, circulating levels of LP little a uh, right here. Um, 
This was first uh, identified in a uh, detection group of roughly 4,000 people, but then uh, uh, had a validation of something like 45,000 people of multiple ethnicities from around the world, Europeans, Asians, African-Americans, um, uh, Hispanics, et cetera. And so it's, it's pretty solid data that's been subsequently uh, verified in other studies that have uh, proven that this particular uh, SNP is, tends, tends to be associated with aortic stenosis. Um, it also is associated with who's got more progressive aortic stenosis. <clears throat> uh, so LP little a, as a, a circulating marker, has also identified which patients develop aortic valve calcification <clears throat> and which patients who have aortic valve calcification will develop more rapid progression, especially in individuals under the age of 50. Here's just one such study by a couple of co-workers along with uh, Sam Simicus, who's probably the leader in the field regarding LP little a uh, pathophysiology, uh, just showing that the rate of the increase in Vmax, remember Vmax is a marker of how tight your nozzle is, how severe is aortic stenosis, progresses with time, it progresses more rapidly in individuals who have a level of LP little a in the, above the median versus below the median. So some of the thinking currently is that this, the LP little a story may be one that's hard. So LPA uh, would uh, cross into the intracellular space, <clears throat> according to this uh, cartoon from Philippe Pibero in Quebec, uh, gets uh, hydrolyzed by the phospholipase A2 into fatty acids and phosphatidylcholine, which then triggers inflammatory responses and it's all cell signaling, which is uh, probably much more complicated than identified here, but factors such as uh, NF-kappa B and bone morphogenic protein and others then leading to calcification. And, you know, cartoons like this are a little bit too simple. Uh, Brian Lindman's come up with a different roadmap, kind of looks like the New York subway, where all of these various things, we're just talking about the left can part here, but all of the other triggers leading from lipid infiltration to inflammation to fibrocalcific responses. So the reason for going through all that is that for the younger people in the room, there's some, going to be some more science here over the course of time as to why valves calcify, and you can imagine all of the possible targets here for drug therapy. Statins have not been effective at reducing this, at least based upon the clinical trials we have, which are not perfect. Perhaps there'll be other, other, other agents. Uh, statins do not target LP little a, uh, whereas other agents might, like PCSK9 inhibitors and others. And so there's active work going on on the LP little a front because of its importance for atherosclerosis that might also identify drugs that could be useful in this condition as well. Okay, let's back up again. So that's another area of active investigation. You and I are still stuck with the patients we see who come in with you know, either symptomatic or asymptomatic severely calcified valves like this. What do we recommend? Okay, so the, so the must reading for the uh, residents and fellows is this paper by Catherine Otto. It's now, uh, as you can see, uh, five years old. Um, it, it goes through this whole idea of the risk factors, the progression, who's at risk with bicuspid valves, who's got risk factors like high cholesterols and so forth, developing calcification, and ultimately on the right, developing severe stenosis. So I tell my fellows, they've they got to read this one because it also goes into when do you do an echo, what do you do with the echo, when do you recommend intervention, et cetera. Now, the must reading for me was this paper from Drs. John Ross, Jr. and Eugene Brownwell. 1968. You have all seen this paper, whether you recognize it or not. 
because this is the seminal paper, which is now 50 years old. We actually had a celebration for Dr. Brownwald in New York last year on the 50th anniversary of this paper. Um, and the reason you've all seen this one is this is the paper which talks about the, the signal here of symptoms, the grave prognosis that appears to accompany the onset of certain symptoms. And in case you haven't recognized this paper yet, this is the paper that comes up with this famous figure, which you all have seen. And most of you in the room, knowing this was going to be a talk about aortic stenosis, probably imagined that I was going to show this figure, because everybody does. It's, in a, it's kind of in the, the hip pocket of most cardiologists who talk about aortic stenosis. This is the uh, look at the natural history of aortic stenosis as seen in 1968. Um, it was actually driven by their surgeon, Glenn Morrow, who, who was arguing at the time, because at that point in time, aortic valve replacement was a big deal. The, the valves were not perfect. Patients were being sent to surgeons usually pretty late in the history of their disease because of the risks of surgery. And the surgeon was arguing with this cardiologist, what is the natural history? You're sending me these patients either too early, where I'm doing this high-risk intervention in uh, people who don't need anything, or you're sending them to me too late. You guys go tell me, what's the natural history of this, of this disease anyway? So you get the impression that Ross and Brownwald then pulled out an envelope and drew this picture on the back of their envelope. I mean, there's no data here. There's no patients. And so, uh, Dr. Krieger, how many patients are in this paper? Do you know? Sorry, I don't want to embarrass you. <laughs> it, it's, it's 12 patients. This is based on, on the results of 12 patients. So the reason we had this celebration with Dr. Brownwald gave me the opportunity to give him a little uh, 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 hit in the ribs thing. Well, Dr. Brownwald, you went on to develop these Timmy trials with uh, you know, 30,000, 40,000 patients. And I don't think any of your Timmy trials are going to have a figure like this, which has a longevity and the durability of this one. This one stood to the test of time for 50 years. Now, of course, in the curve, this curve shifts to our right. And what it's saying is that there's a, there's a latent period of increasing uh, um, calcification and uh, thickening and stenosis during which the ventricle accommodates. Um, but once patients develop symptoms, whether it's age 50, as they depicted back in 68, or age 75 or 80, which is what you and I experience now, once symptoms occur, it's a tipping point. And over the course of the next two to three years, roughly 50% of the patients will die. Okay, well, the other interesting thing about this figure, which is based on you know, very little data, but astute, astute observations, is that it's actually accurate. Because since then, we've got data in real patients uh, over the course of the next uh, 40 to 50 years. Here's a paper 40 years later by a Bach and co-workers at the University of Michigan. Symptomatic patients not having surgery. This is pre-TAVR era. This is published in the 2008, which is when the partner trial began. So there, we didn't have a, a, a non-surgical option. So these patients with symptoms not having surgery have a 50% mortality over the course of three years, precisely as predicted by Ross and Brownwald on the back of their envelope. And so it turns out that this has been uh, accurate. So that makes it very easy <coughs> for a guidelines committee and as uh, Dr. Krieger mentioned, I'm one of the co-conspirators on these guidelines because these are based on um, uh, consensus opinion, primarily in the absence of clinical trials. So it's very easy to make a guidelines recommendation. You have a symptomatic patient, <clears throat> severe aortic stenosis, a patient should have surgery. It's not a class 1A. We don't have randomized trials, and I doubt that we ever will because we're going to replace the valve now either with a surgeon or a, a catheter. 
So that's easy. And so uh, when we write a guideline, it's simple to make it a class one. When the residents take your board exam, that's, that's the easy one. Check the box to replace the valve and move on to the next more difficult question. <clears throat> but for you and me in real life, this is not easy at all. Uh, are these patients having symptoms that are cardiac? So if your patients are like mine that are getting older and deconditioned and overweight and not exercising, they're a little short of breath, you know, is that, is that their aortic stenosis or is that their lifestyle? So I would have no trouble if I'm following a patient with severe aortic stenosis who comes in for the uh, routine reevaluation and the patient now mentions that he or she is getting a little short of breath. I wouldn't play around with that. Patient's got severe aortic stenosis, so I would replace the valve. But in real life, what happens is you have a patient with mild aortic stenosis is a little short of breath. And three years later, it's moderate aortic stenosis, and the patient's a little short of breath. And four years later, it's severe aortic stenosis, and the patient's still a little short of breath. Are we able to tease out what may have changed in this patient's uh, symptom story? Um, it's not easy at all. This is really kind of messy stuff when we're dealing with symptoms with a disease like this. What, what's a symptom? And when, when we know when someone is actually developing a cardiac symptom, so this is not so simple. And what's even more difficult are the asymptomatic patients. So let's just talk about the challenges now for uh, where we're going with aortic stenosis. We'll talk first about the asymptomatic patient. Then we'll talk about low flow, low gradient. And we'll talk about the indications for TAVR, which have changed the playing field completely. Uh, so the asymptomatic patients are kind of the flip side of the last discussion of the symptomatic patient, is it cardiac or not. Uh, how many of our patients are really asymptomatic? Because, again, our patients have lifestyle issues and may, may not be truly asymptomatic. And the ones who are symptomatic stop doing things to reduce their symptoms. And so the, even the careful history-taking that we think we're good at cannot identify all the patients who may actually be developing symptoms. They're not telling us what's going on in terms of the reduction in their lifestyle. Um, so the real question is, are the asymptomatic patients really asymptomatic? Okay, well, what do, you, what do you do then? Well, we, we want to make some recommendations. Let's make a recommendation that the patient's really asymptomatic. Let's prove it. Let's put the patient on a treadmill and see whether we can elicit symptoms or not. So the guidelines have a, a set of indications for recommending surgery, or, or now maybe TAVR, if we do an exercise test and we can bring out the symptoms in a patient that we're missing on the careful history. Uh, so a developing symptoms on a treadmill now has identified this patient is really being symptomatic, not asymptomatic. That's a class one indication. Uh, an abnormal blood pressure response is a 2A recommendation. Okay, are you comfortable with that? Uh, I'm not. It's easy to say this. It's very difficult to implement this. I do, I do recommend stress tests. It's really helpful for the doctor to be in the room watching the patient and trying to tease out what you've just heard from the history taking to how the patient actually looks on a treadmill. Uh, that's what I did with that 84-year-old, by the way. We'll come back to him in a second. But the reason I have trouble with this is as follows. Um, how are symptoms determined on a treadmill? Well, everyone has symptoms on a treadmill. You know, sooner or later, we're talking about one minute of exercise or 15 minutes of exercise, everybody has a symptom on a treadmill. If you're watching the uh, NCAA uh, uh, March Madness, those guys are short of breath after 40 minutes of uh, NCAA ball. I mean, is that a cardiac symptom? Um, are the symptoms cardiac in origin? And what level of exercise? If you go into the papers from which this se seemingly straightforward recommendation comes, that varies all over the map when you look at the individual data out there. Okay, so symptoms are, are fuzzy. Why is hypotension a 2A? That's something you can measure. That's an objective measurement. 
That should be the class one indication, right? Well, yeah, except that that's not how it's defined. Hypotension in this setting is not defined as a fall in blood pressure, which obviously is not normal, but less than a 20 millimeter of mercury increase in blood pressure. So hopefully if you're cynical like I am, say, okay, where did that come from? It's because that's what the data are. It's messy data. Um, and so is 15 millimeters of mercury different than 25 millimeters of mercury? And how well can you actually measure that accurately in somebody who's actively exercising? That's why it's kind of a two-way. The Gestalt is trying to identify who may have a little more going on under the uh, uh, surface of someone who claims to be asymptomatic, but this is, again, not perfect. Uh, so let's assume we have somebody who's really asymptomatic. We'll go back to this 84-year-old individual we talked about. Um, what do we recommend? We could do the watchful waiting. We could get more data. Uh, maybe that stress test. Uh, would it be wrong to replace the aortic valve now? Um, well, for those of you in the room of my generation, you've seen a switch now as to what watchful waiting really means. Um, because now the answer is, let's wait, because the next four to, five minute, four to five years, this patient will develop symptoms. And now the patient becomes a candidate for TAVR. Because this patient right now is asymptomatic, which means he's not a candidate for TAVR. If we want to replace the valve, it's going to be surgery. Uh, because uh, Medicare is not going to pay for an asymptomatic patient. Uh, so let's just wait till he has symptoms, and then it becomes a candidate. Uh, you and I now also have a fourth option, because we finally have a clinical trial that uh, many of us have been trying to do for years uh, where we can enroll him in a clinical trial of asymptomatic individuals with severe aortic stenosis. It's called the early TAVR trial, randomized to TAVR now versus TAVR later. And we'll finally get some data regarding whether an early intervention, which can be done less invasively now, will lead to um, you know, better outcomes in terms of uh, not only uh, life span, but lifestyle over time. So stay tuned. Megan, are you guys enrolled? Yeah, so you're, you're actively enrolled in that, and so are we. It's kind of, kind of finally exciting. We tried to do this a couple of years ago with the NIH uh, using surgical AVR, and it got turned, uh, turned away, but now we can actually do this with TABR. Okay, so why did I say that this patient's likely to develop symptoms over the course of the next four to five years? Here we have data of the natural history. Because echocardiography allows us not only to identify diagnosis, but also severity. So here's some data from Catherine Otto, University of Washington, following patients for five years, defining that it's mild, moderate, and severe aortic stenosis based upon that VMAX, again, the nozzle and the hose. So you have mild aortic stenosis at the top, moderate in the middle, and severe aortic stenosis at the bottom. Uh, the, the moderate group begins to progress with time, but the group that starts out with severe aortic stenosis in the bottom, over the course of five years, has an endpoint <clears throat> virtually 100% of the time. The endpoints are not death. The endpoints are patients developing symptoms. The eight patients who died in this series all developed symptoms first, so there was no sudden death uh, without a cardiac symptom. That's an important point that I'll come back to because we're all worried about patients uh, dying suddenly. It's a very low risk, actually, if we're catching the patients when they develop symptoms on time. Um, so when I showed this, I talked to Dr. Krieger earlier today. I gave this talk at the Brigham a couple of years ago. And uh, if you give a talk at the Brigham, you're in this wood-paneled wood room. Uh, you're at a lectern like this. On the left-hand wall is a portrait of Dr. Brownwald. And sitting in the front row is Dr. Brownwald. And so <laughs> I showed this figure to him and the, and the group. And he interrupted me. And of course, when it's Dr. Brownwald, you let him interrupt you. And he, and he said, now, wait a minute, Dr. Bonham. Um, suppose you submitted two patients to the study for Dr. Otto. One has a VMAX of uh, 2.5, and one has a VMAX of 4.5. 
are you going to follow those patients equally carefully? And so that's the problem. The patients in the lower curve are being watched like a hawk. And so if those two people develop symptoms, get short of breath next month, we're not going to replace the valve in the person who does not have aortic stenosis. We're going to replace the valve in, in the patient who's got severe aortic stenosis. So there's a, there's a post-test referral bias built into here. That's the problem we have. It's not a randomized trial. But these data in patients with severe aortic stenosis are paralleled by data from Rosenheck and co-workers in Vienna, Pelica and co-workers at the Mayo Clinic, Stewart and co-workers in the United Kingdom, and most recently, Lancelotti and co-workers, multi-center multi study in Europe and Canada. So not every patient who's got a VMAX rate in the four comes to surgery in five years, but the majority do. That's why it would not be wrong to be having the discussion with, with my patient now about replacing the valve now. It's inevitable that the person's going to have a, come to a need for aortic valve replacement over the course of the next five years. The Rosenheck data were important for a couple reasons. They showed that aortic valve calcification, the severity of calcification, which you and I can now measure with a CT scan, objectively, is a marker of who's going to progress more rapidly. And the Rosenheck group also came back to us a couple years later subdividing the patients with a VMAX greater than four into three groups of mild, oh, sorry, severe, more severe, most severe aortic stenosis. When the VMAX is greater than five meters per second, that's already crossed my threshold to recommend uh, valve replacement because the likelihood of needing surgery within three years is so high that it's, it's kind of inevitable. So people look at this and say, well, wait a minute, there's also some deaths in that series. Uh, there were 96 events. Most of it were surgical indications, but there were six cardiac deaths while we were waiting. Notice only one sudden cardiac death. So the five other patients who died all had symptoms first. We're just not being operated upon uh, quickly enough. And uh, the uh, comeback to saying perhaps we should have recommended surgery earlier is the fact that if you do surgery, in 79% of those patients, there were six deaths in the three months postoperatively. So you didn't save any lives by early operation. Early operation might be recommended because it's so inevitable. But these are surgical data. Maybe TAVR would give you a different outcome. So let's just focus on this uh, issue of whether patients die uh, and we lose them because we have not recommended an early intervention. There's a number of studies which are mostly single-center, retrospective looks at things which are uh, problematic. The one paper I'll show, just because I don't have time to get into all of them, is a probably the best one we've got, which is a prospective multi-center registry in Japan where patients with severe aortic stenosis are either followed medically, shown here, 74% survival at five years, or they undergo an immediate operation where the outcome is uh, better, 85% survival at five years. Okay, well, my fellows pick this up and they say, well, we've got data now that early intervention leads to a better outcome. And I say, well, careful. Um, maybe the patients who didn't get surgery in orange were higher risk, and that's why they didn't go to surgery. Older, kidney failure, it was appropriate not to recommend surgery. And so the investigators did the appropriate thing. They did a propensity match to try to match the comorbidities. And so these are the propensity match data, which is why you have an equal number of patients in both groups. So they've adjusted for the comorbidities as best one can with a propensity match, which is also not necessarily enough to adjust away all the comorbidities, but it was done. And then I tell my fellows, read the fine print a little bit more about how these patients were followed. 31% uh, of the patients in, who were treated medically developed symptoms, but never had an AVR. 
That, these are high-risk patients who should have had surgery. That's contributed to 17 deaths in that curve. So this is why we need this prospective randomized trial called the early TAVR trial, because the data we've got regarding outcome with medical versus uh, surgical intervention is just, is just not perfect. But now we can do this with TAVR or other prospective trial, which will help us a lot. So in the meantime, uh, we have to deal with what data we got. We have a 2A indication for very severe aortic stenosis with Vmax greater than 5, where the likelihood of needing surgery in three years is so high. Or how about rapid progression and low surgical risk? Uh, we also use that, the 2B indication. Now, low surgical risk is interesting. Uh, it means the patient is a low surgical risk, and it means that your surgical team is a low surgical risk. Um, you, luckily, you live in that environment. Your surgeons uh, can deliver probably a less than 1% operative mortality in a patient like this, as, as can I. But that's not true nationwide. So we want to choose our surgeons wisely if we're talking about intervening in an asymptomatic individual until we have likelihood of doing this with TAVR. Okay, so the guidelines are lowering the threshold for surgery in asymptomatic patients based upon uh, severity of AS, severity of calcification, LB function, exercise responses. How about BNP as a biomarker? There's some data with BNP. The best study comes from Clavell and coworkers where she and her coworkers um, uh, did the obvious analysis, and that is BNP varies as a function of age and sex. So let's adjust the patient's data for the upper limit of normal for age and sex. You come up with a ratio of the patient's BNP divided by the upper limit for age and sex, and when it's less than one, the outcome is much better than when it's uh, two to three. Um, and so that's one way of doing this. But this is also a work in progress because BNP also varies depending upon BMI and also varies according to ethnicity. It's, it's lower in African-Americans. So uh, we need a little more data before this becomes mainstream. And stay tuned for the other biomarkers du jour, which are developing regarding uh, fibrosis, inflammation, wall stress, et cetera. And there's also imaging biomarkers. MRI is very good at identifying interstitial fibrosis as a marker of, of which patients are progressing. Patients with more interstitial fibrosis have higher uh, troponin leaks as well. And so uh, there'll be more information coming down the pike maybe to help us identify who these patients are. In the meantime, we don't want to miss the fact that once patients have symptoms, we don't want to uh, play around with that. So we don't want to uh, miss that. We need to keep emphasizing the class one indications for operating on symptomatic patients. Okay, I'm going to now segue into something the cardiologists dread, and therefore I'm not going to spend much time on this because this is something for you to discuss with your cardiologist primarily. But not every patient comes in as a patient I discussed who's got this high gradient from that tight nozzle. Uh, you may have what's called low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis, which is a bugaboo for about uh, one-third of the patients we now see. That can come in two varieties. One would be a patient who's got left ventricular dysfunction. The afterload excess of that aortic stenosis has now depressed the ejection fraction. We now have a low-flow state because of the LB dysfunction. And it's low-flow, low-gradient LB dysfunction. Uh, this one makes sense conceptually. This is where uh, the echo lab will do a dobutamine echo to augment the flow across the valve and therefore get a more uh, accurate handle on how severe the aortic stenosis is. These are difficult patients. They're sick. Uh, their management is not easy, but at least the, the pathophysiology makes sense conceptually. But that's where life becomes a little more tricky. Now, suppose instead we have this patient where the patient has a normal ejection fraction as a low flow, low gradient, but a normal ejection fraction. Uh, this is where we have a lot of patients now who are being identified 
accurately or inaccurately, is having aortic stenosis with low flow or gradient. Now, in this concept, you can see this could occur here because the patient's got severe hypertrophy that reduces your end diastolic volume, that reduces your stroke volume. So even though the ejection fraction is normal, you've got a low flow state. This is what you see in elderly people who have a lot of hypertrophy, especially elderly women who have a more hypertrophic response. It could also occur if you have hypertension. There's an extra impedance ejection that reduces your flow. So what you do there is you treat the hypertension and restudy the patient. So if you first treat the hypertension when we see this, we should probably confirm our suspicion that this is actually aortic stenosis, uh, not only by echo, but also a cardiac catheterization. But even when you do that, you find that about one-third of patients with normal ejection fractions and aortic stenosis have a low flow state. So this is where we need to look for other markers, calcification, maybe some of those biomarkers and advanced imaging. Uh, what it really requires is for you and me to be a good doctor. This patient look and feel like it could be aortic stenosis. Uh, scenario used to be missed and underdiagnosed, and now because of all of the literature that's uh, coming out in the uh, cardiovascular realm, uh, I think we're tending to overdiagnose this. You need to be good doctors. Uh, many of these patients actually have amyloidosis. They don't have aortic stenosis at all. They've got a thickened myocardium. They've got a low flow state, and it's not aortic stenosis at all. It's amyloid. Uh, about 22% of the men with this condition actually have amyloid. So stay tuned. So this is where the guidelines really do a cop-out. They say, uh, okay, let's consider uh, aortic valve replacement only if clinical, anatomic, and hemodynamic data support severe aortic stenosis. Well, that's great, because I'm, I'm not sure that that tells you how to do that. We just need more information about these patients. Finally, let's talk about TAVR. This has just been totally mind-blowing about how this has evolved so rapidly. Uh, these are national data from the STS published uh, in January by D'Agostino and co-workers. It's the latest up, uh, STS update. You can see TAVR now in 2017 has eclipsed surgical AVR um, with time. Uh, and uh, in my center, that happened back around 2016. We're doing more TAVRs than surgical AVR. But it's interesting. Uh, look what's happened to the surgical volume. It actually hasn't dropped much. It's plateaued. So what TAVR has done is taken the cream off the top of all those patients who were not getting surgery previously because of high risk. So we have TAVR now for these high-risk individuals, prohibitive surgical risk, high surgical risk. But most of the patients we treat with surgery are not high risk. That's why the surgical volumes have not changed very much. But that's now going to change very rapidly. So what the guidelines have at the current time, updated in 2017, would be if you have a prohibitive surgical risk, we should do a TAVR. We have a clinical trial showing that. If patients are high surgical risk, we have two trials showing uh, non-inferiority, so the patient could have a TAVR or a SAVR, and therefore most of these patients have TAVR as opposed to surgical AVR. The intermediate risk patients, uh, when the guidelines were done, we had one clinical trial which said maybe a 2A for TAVR compared to surgery, but one month after the guidelines were published, the second clinical trial popped up, which now we had two clinical trials. So perhaps in the future, this would be a class one indication for TAVR uh, as an alternative to surgery. That's where we are right now. But now uh, what's happened is this whole issue of low surgical risk. Uh, right now, the guidelines say these patients should have surgery. So low risk for surgery, we have no data with TAVR up until two weeks ago. And so what should we recommend? This is where the hot button item has just happened because if you've been following Newman Journal, you notice that there were two trials uh, presented just uh, two weeks ago. The first one is the uh, data with the Sapien valve, the balloon expandable valve by the partner group. This is the partner three trial. 73 years old, mean STS score of 1.9 
low degree of comorbidities. These are the patients I see where we're talking about when to do something, when not to do something, and if we do something, it's surgery. Well, this is going to be totally uh, mind-blowing for the effect it's going to have on the uh, uh, treatment of patients with aortic stenosis because it showed in this analysis of uh, death, stroke, or rehospitalization a significant reduction in this primary event with TAVR. Careful, it's driven mostly by the rehospitalizations, not by the death and the strokes. Uh, so the surgery uh, arm was quite good. These were terrific surgeons in this trial. Surgical, these were indeed low-risk patients. Twelve months later, there was a one percent mortality with surgery. With uh, I'm sorry, two point five with surgery, uh, slightly lower with TAVR, but not significant. So it's really hard to drive a mortality trial in, in these low-risk patients. That's why it's a composite score. Um, and the other important thing is the quality of life was significantly better in the patients who got the TAVR, not only early but also late over the course of the next 12 months. Um, this was followed back-to-back uh, -back by the other trial with the other device by the uh, core valve group, uh, looking at the Evolute valve, showing very, very similar results. Uh, so without going into the details, the remarkable thing is we had two trials back-to-back -back with identical patients and identical results. It's remarkable how consistent these are. There's the age, the STS score, that's the risk score, uh, with comorbidities, prior MI, peripheral disease, and diabetes. You can see how consistent it is, both in Partner 3 and the Evolute trial. Different devices, but really very similar patients. Very similar degree of aortic stenosis, the aortic valve area, the mean gradient, and the left ventricular ejection fraction. Very, very comparable. And here are the outcomes. Mortality, again, very, very low. Uh, stroke, actually significantly lower with TAVR. We used to be concerned that TAVR would create more strokes. That's not the case. Much less atrial fibrillation. And uh, not a whole lot of new pacemakers with the sapien valve, but significantly higher pacemakers with the core valve. That's a bulkier device which tends to disrupt the, co the conduction tissue in the septum a little more. Uh, that's something that's got to be factored into whether we're going to be putting in a lot of devices in uh, lower-risk people, younger ages, where pacemakers become a, a big issue. That's going to be uh, worthy of further discussion. But that means that this uh, recommendation that surgery for the left bar here is the class one indication has probably got to change. But the guidelines committee is revving up to try to assimilate these data and come up with uh, how to now factor TAVR into the low-risk patients. But stay tuned. TAVR opens up some other interesting opportunities. Um, we, as mentioned, we have two trials here. We actually have a trial looking at patients who have a primary cardiomyopathy. They have an LV dysfunction based upon a dilated cardiomyopathy who happen to have moderate aortic stenosis. And um, maybe that degree of atrial is just too much for that sick ventricle. So there's a, there's a clinical trial in patients with primary LV dysfunction and moderate aortic stenosis of TAVR. Now, if that's positive, that's going to really change things because then you don't have, to, don't have to worry about this low gradient stuff. Just put a TAVR in everybody, whether it's primary or secondary. And then finally, we have the early TAVR trial. So this is where the field is going, and it's going very, very rapidly. It makes it very difficult to keep up with all of this. Keep in mind, though, that the endpoints are important. When you're dealing with high-risk patients, we have a hard endpoint of mortality. Mortality when you've got the high uh, surgical risk. When you start dealing with lower-risk patients, it gets messier. Then you start dealing with composite endpoints, mortality and stroke. For these um, uh, low-risk trials, it was mortality, stroke, and hospitalization. Most of the endpoints being driven by hospitalization. Uh, the um, uh, LV dysfunction is actually a heart failure trial 
There you're going to talk about mortality, stroke, hospitalization, quality of life, renal function, all kinds of things. And that's also true for the TABRA trial. So the, these trials are going to be a little bit less easy to interpret and therefore more open for conjecture as well. So where's TABRA going in 2019? I think uh, uh, your, your group, which is really sitting on top of this uh, field, could uh, easily uh, come up with your wish list. Uh, I think this, first of all, has been totally transformative. Uh, in the last uh, 10 years, the way it's just kind of opened up the box completely is how we manage our patients, what our patients read about, and what we talk about. Surgical AVR has been the standard with, with proven durability and safety for most patients. Is, is surgical AVR still the standard? Um, if you look at the durability issue, there's an issue about whether these, uh, you know, these crimped valves, which are expanded in the, in, in the, uh, uh, in the aortic annulus, uh, that crimping and re-expanding, is that damaging the tissue in some way so the valve is less durable? There's no evidence for that. And then, then if you actually look and see what the surgical data are for a surgically replaced bioprosthetic valve, we don't have a lot of data there either. The good news is these low-risk trials are going to follow patients for 10 years in a randomized fashion, so we'll finally have good surgical data as well as durability data from the TAVR. But I'm not sure SAVR is still the standard anymore. Uh, TAVR provides treatment options for patients who previously had none, they were too high risk for surgery, and they had short-term short outcomes that were very poor. TAVR is an alternative to SAVR, surgical ABR, in patients at higher intermediate risk. It's now evolving into low risk. Stay tuned. Uh, that's going to change. Um, uh, waiting for you know FDA and CMS uh, to start changing their rules about uh, who's approved and who gets reimbursed. That's going to change very rapidly. That's going to start having interesting discussions then. Surgeons will not be out of business. So still have patients with bicuspid valves, with uh, aortic aneurysms, severe coronary disease as well. And this still should be a team sport. That's the other point. A multidisciplinary team is what's driven this and its success so far. We don't want to lose that. It's got to be a team-based effort between the interventional and imaging cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, social workers, everybody coming together and determining what we think is the best option for the patient, and then involving, of course, the patient himself or herself, because all patients want this. That's actually what's driving a lot of this, the patient's desire to have this done. I, I don't blame them. But that also creates the biggest, most difficult part of this, is when do you say no? Uh, when do you say no? Okay, you've got a 45-year-old person who needs aortic valve replacement. Do we recommend TAVR for that person? Uh, you've got the 95-year-old individual who's got multiple cardiovascular risk factors where replacing the valve is not going to lead to any improvement in quality of life or quantity of life because of all the co comorbidities. So these two extremes actually make it very, very interesting and very difficult for us. Uh, we can say yes now to more patients, but we have to say no to a lot of patients too. And that's probably one of the most difficult things we do because the patients and their families are, are demanding something. And sometimes there's no good, no good solution, um, at least not with TAVR. And so I'm going to harken back to another paper. This is now 60 years old. Uh, I think few in the room read this paper, too, growing up. Paul Wood, a uh, preeminent cardiologist in London in the 1950s, wrote this in 1958. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful treatise. If you know Paul Wood's writings, he's, a, he's got a wonderful way with words, British cardiologist. Uh, and so he points out that aortic stenosis is a simple mechanical fault which, if severe enough, imposes a heavy burden on the left ventricle and sooner or later overcomes it. Wow, that kind of sums it up pretty well. Um, 
except that the difference now this is no longer simple this is complicated stuff you know how do we diagnose the patients how do we have our discussions with patients what are our treatment options and you know how do we hold the the the, the flow in terms of the enthusiasm for TAVR so uh, this is a slide I show for my cardiology fellows it's two ways of capturing sound waves uh, it's the next method on the left, and it's the echo transducer on the right. They're both capturing sound. Uh, my fellows are great on the right. They, they, they run circles around me with all the new advances in technology and uh, echocardiography. I'm much better on the left, and it's not because I have better ears. It's because I've been doing it longer than they have. And, and the left really doesn't mean stethoscope. It means clinical judgment. So what we need to do is, is kind of marry the technology and the clinical judgment pieces together, uh, they, may, they may not be the same people with two hands here, but therefore the two individuals need to be communicating. And it gets trickier now because there's a third hand involved in the pie, and that's the person holding the tavern valve. So how do we make this triad you know, work well, and how do we provide the right options and the right discussions for our patients? It's going to be an interesting ride as this uh, continues to evolve. And for me, it's been quite exciting to see this evolve over the last uh, 40 to 50 years. Thank you very much for your attention. All right, we have time for questions. Oh, yeah. So, so if I, I just want to ask a point. So, if you have a patient with a nice systolic dejection murmur and you think it's aortic stenosis, but the person's asymptomatic, is the most important study the echo or the most important study the stress test, or do you have to do them both? Um, yeah, uh, I think the echo is quite helpful. It, it tells you whether it's a bicuspid valve or a trileaflet valve in most cases. Um, it gives you the information about left ventricular function as well as the severity of the aortic stenosis. So I'd get the echo first. You could argue that if the patient's asymptomatic, maybe it's not going to make any difference in terms of our management. But I think it does. It, it tells you maybe how frequently you want to see that patient. So, you know, I have some patients I see every two years. I have other patients I see every six months, sometimes even more often. I don't get an echo every time, but in some patients I want to get serial echoes to see if it's progressing, maybe once a year. So I think the echocardiogram is quite helpful. And in some cases you want other information, too, like an MRI. The person's got a bicuspid valve with an aneurysm. Um, and the MRI or a CT scan is quite good at telling you who's got a, a bicuspid valve versus a, a trileaflet valve. Um, I think the stress test is important, too. Once you've identified the patient as having real aortic stenosis, I think a stress test is helpful. Maybe not every visit, but maybe to do one now and stick that away till future reference in case the patient starts uh, you know, changing clinically. Because the concept of watchful waiting in patients who are 85 and 90 might be problematic, do you see any possibility that people are going to be moved towards Haver when earlier on, when they're actually asymptomatic, but again, they're, they have this other disease, which is called 85 years. <laughs> so this is where we need to stay tuned, because uh, uh, luckily your group is involved in this trial. It's something we've been trying to implement for many, many years, and we now actually have the trial underway. 85-year-old, uh, I don't know. That's a great question. Uh, is any intervention worth doing in an asymptomatic 85-year-old? I don't know. That maybe it depends on how severe the aortic stenosis is and how quickly you think this is going to progress. Because uh, we, we've all seen patients come in who are really very sick, you know, uh, who last year looked pretty good, and maybe if we'd replaced the valve then, they would have had a better outcome. I don't know. I don't know the answer to the question. 
it's probably more germane to a 65 and 75 year old where replacing the valve in an asymptomatic person may lead to uh, you know, better longevity. Uh, 85 year old, of course, we're more interested in quality of life. Um, and uh, uh, I think we just need to see what this trial, because that trial is going to have quality of life built in. It's hard to make people feel better who already feel good, but do you actually lead to long-term improvement in quality? Well, it won't be probably survival so much as it will be some quality of life indices. <clears throat> I was curious how the presence of regurgitation changes the, uh, the assessment of what to do in, in the modern era. Yeah, it changes it a lot. It depends on how much. So we're talking about aortic stenosis and regurgitation, uh, or even aortic regurgitation uh, alone, isolated they are. Um, uh, there's some good data with TAVR. If the patient uh, has severely calcified valve, that uh, aortic regurgitation in and of itself is not an indication why you shouldn't do it if the patient also has aortic stenosis. Um, I don't know, Megan, there's not a lot of data on that, but it's usually not patients who've got rip-roaring aortic regurgitation. It's usually uh, more severe aortic stenosis and regurgitation. But if the valve is calcified, uh, amenable to um, a uh, TAVR approach, uh, TAVR certainly could be done. And we've actually translated that to patients who've got aortic regurgitation when the valve is very calcified and they're higher risk for surgery, older people who develop aortic regurgitation. So we've, we've done TAVR in patients with aortic regurgitation. Most patients with aortic regurgitation are not candidates for TAVR because they have a bigger annulus, they've got aortic problems, um, and uh, they don't have a lot of calcification. It's the calcification that allows the, uh, these caged, uh, strutted valves to uh, uh, stick in the, in the annulus and stay there without moving. And so with a non-calcified valve, there's lots of uh, startup companies trying to develop the right technology to do this, and uh, uh, we're not quite there yet. Follow-up question about uh, your phospholipase A. I think your phospholipase A2 data predicting uh, risk for aortic stenosis. Did, did I get that right? Uh, it's probably the LP little a, which is predicting the risk, and the phospholipase A2 is activated once you've got a high LP little a. So that model is sort of reminiscent of foam cells in the wall of uh, your uh, vessels. Absolutely, right, right, right. So is there any evidence that this is an inflammatory process and yeah. inflammatory interventions? Yeah. And does CRP predict uh, people that are going to progress? Uh, so I don't, I don't think CRP has been helpful. Um, um, <clears throat> of course, you, you could even... If you want to get into that debate about whether it's helpful for coronary disease, there's still some, still some people who argue that one. Um, we do, I mean, the, thing, the current thinking is that this is indeed some kind of active, inflammatory, proliferative kind of process. It's akin to atherosclerosis, but not identical to it. Um, uh, you know, the statin trials were negative, but that's probably because the horse was already out of the barn by the patients got identified. These patients already had murmurs. They already had calcification. Maybe it was too late for the statin to work. The perfect trial would be a patient with a bicuspid valve at age 20 who's got a very pliable valve, and you know that in the next 30 years it's going to calcify. Let's give that patient a statin and randomize the patient. But no one's going to do that. We're not going to have a 30-year trial, you know, with a, with a drug that's already a generic which is too bad because that, that would be the perfect milieu. Um, so statins might actually work if we tried them earlier, but at least in the, in the uh, patients we see, it's probably not going to be effective. Other drugs might be. Maybe, however, once the valve is calcified, there may be a process you can't reverse. It may progress in either way. Bob, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.